he shall be called. That's what this prophecy, this one verse that we're going to spend these four Sundays leading up to Christmas studying, meditating upon, talking about. You might say, Stephen, one verse, what are you going to do to stretch it out? Well, there's so much here in this one verse, you could spend much more than the Sundays of the Advent season talking about these words, these thoughts, what they mean. So I want to ask you to commit to taking seriously the daily Bible readings that we provided for you for this Christmas season. If you hadn't grabbed one of those uh, DBR books, we call them daily Bible reading books. It's just for this season of Christmas. They're at the info centers. And of course, if you're signed up already on our email list for uh, devotional thoughts, you're going to get these in your inbox, your email inbox each and every day as well. But it's The prophet Isaiah, the ninth chapter, the sixth verse, where he says this, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Keep in mind that as we move through these titles, that's exactly what they are. We know that his given name was Jesus. Jesus, a common name in the Old Testament time and a common name even today, at least in our Spanish culture, Jesus. But that was his given name, even though it has a lot of meaning, the word Jesus is translated out of the Old and the New Testament languages to mean Savior. In the Old Testament, it's Joshua. Joshua, whose name meant the one who would deliver the people. And so Jesus is our Lord's given name. Christ is a title. Many people get confused over that, and they think his first name is Jesus, his last name is Christ. No. Christ is a title that literally from the Greek language, the language of the New Testament, is translated Messiah. And so Jesus, if you're going to be really sticklish about it, you would say Jesus the Christ. It is a title and it means he is our Messiah. And then we have this additional title that carries with it a history that is amazing in and of itself. Lord, Lord. So you'll see in scripture or even in your own language, especially as you're praying, it might be Lord Jesus Christ or Jesus Christ is Lord. What we just finished singing, Acapulco, acapella just a minute ago. (laughs) Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the Lord. You see, Lord was a common term as well, but it took on a whole different meaning when the Roman emperor took it on for himself. Caesar is Lord. And if you were part of the Roman Empire, which during New Testament times, that was the dominating force of the known world, the Roman emperors, the Caesars, 
And when Caesar, be it Caesar Augustus or Caesar Caligula or Caesar whoever, Nero, doesn't matter. When they took on and latched onto that title Lord, it became a, an issue of allegiance. Is Caesar Lord or is Jesus Lord of your life? So you begin to see just with the name of Jesus himself, his name, the titles ascribed to him, the decisions that people had to make when they either pledged allegiance to Caesar as Lord or Jesus as Lord. But it goes all the way back to when these titles that we're going to look at over these next Sundays of Christmas, it all goes back to that passage. For these four titles we're going to look at over the next four Sundays of the Christmas season begins with Wonderful Counselor, then Everlasting Father, then Prince of Peace, and on and on. We see that they have two parts to each one of these titles. You have the wonderful counselor that we're going to look at this morning. You have the mighty God that we're going to look at next week. Then you have everlasting or eternal father, which will be the next one. And then closing out prince of peace. Each one of them seem to have two parts to these titles. And indeed they do. And one word helps to explain the next. So that's going to be our game plan. That's as you're looking at it, as you're studying it, as you're praying through these titles, as you're asking God to speak to you, just look at them from that perspective and that point of view. And as we dig deeper into what might seem to be overkill on one verse, we'll begin to see that Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 is really a story all about Jesus in and of itself. For that's what history is. It is his story, the story of Scripture. So this first one today, wonderful counselor. It begs a question. Some people want to put a comma right here, or as you see on the screen, is it wonderful, comma, counselor? Is it two titles, or is it to be wonderful counselor? The reason many people put a comma there is because of a very, very familiar piece of music at Christmas, Handel's Messiah, where in that portion of his musical score, the very phrasing of wonderful in several measures of music play, counselor, it has caused many people to say that these are actually two separate titles, two things that we look at each one in and of themselves. The others seem to not be that way. It seems that the others, the other three that we will look at, it's very evident that they are a unity. Let's look at each one of these two this morning, taking in mind that some people put a comma there. So we're going to talk for a few minutes about Jesus being wonderful. And then we're going to talk for a few minutes about Jesus being a counselor. And then we're going to do what we rightfully should do anyway. We're going to put them together. We're going to look at the wonderful counselor who is 
wonder and a counselor extraordinaire. It all goes back in history to the 700s B.C. before Christ. This is not a time where we can go through a history of Israel, but we do need to keep in mind just a couple of key factors about what was happening when Isaiah was prophesying and speaking these words. It was a time of turmoil in the nation. Actually, nations. For you may or may not remember, but if we go back to the first king of Israel... His name was Saul. He was succeeded by the king known as the king during the golden age of Israel's history, David. Oh, we're very familiar with Saul and David. We're very familiar with David and Goliath. Well, David reigned over a united kingdom. You remember that when God divided up the people way back when they took the promised land, there were 12 tribes And all 12 of the tribes of Israel were united under Saul. They were united under David. They were united under David's son, Solomon. We just got through looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. It's attributed to King Solomon, the wisest man on the face of the earth. Well, the first three kings ruled over a united kingdom, all 12 tribes occupying the land. But then... At Solomon's death, this is about 900-something B.C., there was a civil war. We've seen that in our own country's history. And like that of our country, back here after Solomon's death, there was a fighting over who would rule, and it ended up that they just divided north and south. Not over the same issue as our countries, over slavery, but over leadership For whatever reason, there is now a north kingdom. It's going to be known in this time period as Israel. It's confusing here, but just hang with me for a moment. You're going to have the north kingdom of Israel, which were two of those 12 tribes. And then you're going to have a south kingdom, but it's not called Israel. It's called Judah from this time on. It had the remaining 10 tribes that comprised Israel the south kingdom of Judah, the north kingdom of Israel, two of the tribes in the north, ten of the tribes in the south. The capital of the north kingdom was Samaria, the capital city of Judah, Jerusalem. Isaiah was a prophet who prophesied as part of the southern kingdom of Judah. He spoke to the kings. And during this time when this verse that we're studying this Christmas, when it was written, the king over the southern kingdom of Judah, his name was Ahaz. Ahaz. A-H-A-Z. Ahaz was a conflicted person, history will tell us. He did some good things and he... He made some terrible decisions regarding how he governed the people. He was influenced by a lot of things other than the will of God, that's for sure. So the background of this passage, the background of 
Isaiah 9, 6 is during that time of turmoil when the south kingdom of Judah was being threatened by Assyria. Assyria would eventually swallow up the north kingdom in about 722 B.C. Assyria would not last long enough to overtake Judah. That would go to Babylonia or Babylon, the king Nebuchadnezzar, if that name rings a bell to you. So you've got Isaiah, who is the prophet to the south kingdom of Judah at a time when Judah was being surrounded by her enemies, including her sister to the north, the north kingdom of Israel, had gotten into a coalition with Assyria and they were threatening Judah. So this is the background of two of the most important prophecies that come out of this time. Isaiah seven fourteen. it's not one that we're going to look at in depth at this time, but that's that, that's that passage that says, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. We attribute that child, the real uh, birth of that child, to being Jesus, and the virgin to being his mother Mary, his earthly father Joseph. But that prophecy was given almost out of anger, God's righteous anger, because he had told Isaiah to go to Ahaz and say, you tell King Ahaz that all he has to do is ask any sign from me that he wants, and I will give it to him because I want him to know that I'm going to protect the south kingdom of Judah. Ahaz already had an alternate plan B. He already had teamed up with another group of people. He thought that he could handle this himself. And so when Isaiah came to Ahaz and said, Ahaz, God is going to watch over the people and he wants to give you a sign. You ask him for whatever you want. And Ahaz piously said, who am I to tempt God? Who am I to test God? Sounds very religious, but it's actually masking the simple fact that he already had made up his mind that he was not going to seek God's will in this matter. And so when he said piously, who am I to test God? Then God came back to Isaiah and said, Isaiah, you give him a sign anyway. And here is the sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. That prophecy did come true in Isaiah's day, most likely. That child who was born, could it have been Isaiah's wife? No one knows. Could it have been a relative of Ahaz? No one knows. But we do know this, that God spared Judah, the south kingdom. For two or three hundred years, they lived in peace until Babylon destroyed them. This verse that we're looking at over Christmas, though, has a little bit different background. This is just a few short time, short period of time after that sign that God gave to Ahaz. And now Isaiah comes, and in the midst of feeling the pressure, wondering if God was going to come through, Isaiah gives a promise. A promise that we just read in Isaiah, the ninth chapter, the sixth verse. A promise of a savior. A promise of a child who will be born, a son. And these four 
titles given to that child. Wonderful counselor. Let's look at it for a few minutes. Like I said, we're going to divide it up here just for a few minutes to consider wonder or wonderful and counsel or counselor. Wonderful. What do you think of when you think of wonder? I think of great. Maybe you think of something that is just a a tremendous surprise. That's the way we view a term like this, at least most of us. We just tie some emotional feelings, a sense of wonder. But this wonder that's given as a title to this child has a rich history throughout the Old Testament. And what it means each and every time it's mentioned, it means incomprehensible. It means a a blow-your-mind type of situation. That this is not just something or a child who's going to grow up and be great. It's not going to be a sign of someone who just has a sense of wonder. But this is going to be someone who just like the scripture describes God's character as being one that we cannot even comprehend. This is the child. This is the savior that will be bring peace upon this earth. He will be incomprehensible. It's that way all the way through the handful of times or more when this word, this particular word is used in the context of an Old Testament story. It's always referring to the fact that we cannot even begin to fathom the wonder of God. It also could mean someone who, who works wonders. The reason that child is going to be incomprehensible to our minds is because he is going to be one who works miracles. That's got to be part of it. But then again, what is a miracle to you and to me? Is a miracle when your team pulls out a victory literally out of nowhere? Or is a miracle the the bare aspirin that I take when I get a headache, and certainly I consider that to be a miracle. Have we resigned or have we defined miracles as simply being some of those things that can easily be explained by technology or by the fact that we have more to work with now? Are there discoveries going on all the time? This is not the wonder of the Son who will work miracles, work the miraculous in our midst. For his miracle will be far beyond anything we could understand or describe. He truly is a wonder. Now, that begs a question. Knowing that this child born is going to be a wonder, does that cause us to worship the creation or the creator? See, there's always a danger here that we're going to look beyond the person. We're going to look beyond the spirit of God that is at work in our lives. And we're going to see what he has done, the amazing things he has done. And what is the danger? The danger is we're going to focus on what he has created. And we're going to start worshiping the created things and not the creator himself. What do you call it? It's called idolatry. Idolatry is alive and well on planet earth, even in this day. We read it. It's the simple uh, problem that people had all the way through scriptures. They never could separate the creation from the creator. 
And we have to be careful as well. So we see here that Jesus is not just wonderful, though he is, but Jesus is the wonder himself. He is the very embodiment of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He indwells our lives. He truly is the wonder of wonders. Okay, that's wonderful. Now let's look for a moment as counselor. We're looking at them separately. Then we're going to put them together. Counselor. Is this uh, you laying on a couch and trying to work through problems with a therapist? Is that what it means? No. Once again, it's a word that's used in the Old Testament in particular that describes a title given to a king, to a wonder worker, to a world leader, that that leader is always going to be one who makes wise decisions and gives good counsel to his or her subjects. Counselor. But it's not just wise. It's much more than that. It has everything to do with direction that is given, with God's will that is always an option for us to choose or to reject. But this child, growing up, will become a counselor whose counsel is always correct, whose counsel is always wise, whose counsel can have a direct impact upon our lives if we so choose to obey. You know, we talked before that there are certain decisions that we all make that are uh, easy to choose or should be easy. Some things are just clearly right or wrong. Some things are good or bad. There are other things we taught before that are more of in a gray area. Sometimes it's a decision that is not between bad things, but it may be good, better, best. And it really gets tough to discern what choice to make when in the back of your mind you say, and you, you should think this way, why do I want what's good when there's better out there? And why do I want what's better when God's best is out there. Well, that's why the counselor, that's why we need the counsel of the counselor. Because some of those decisions are decisions that, as we see in Jesus' own life, he showed us what it meant to follow wise counsel. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 temptations of Jesus. You remember the basic story? Jesus grows in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man till he's 30 years of age. Then he leaves home. He's going to live three years, a little, little more than three years, actually. We know there are three Passovers in John's gospel. That's an annual celebration. Therefore, his ministry, once he was baptized in the Jordan River by his cousin John, it was three to three and a half years before he's nailed to a cross. But the very first thing he did after his baptism, there where the Jordan River spills into the Dead Sea, is he went up into the mountains of the wilderness 
alone. And he was there for 40 days. And he fasted during those 40 days. Why did he do that? Well, he needed time alone with God. That's one reason. That's an obvious reason. He was preparing for what he was going to accomplish in the next three years. I'm sure that was on his mind. For whatever reason, he needed the time to be alone before he chose his disciples, before his reputation grew and he was going to be followed everywhere he went and people were going to ask for healing and blessing and he was going to bestow those things upon those people that asked. We were going to see time and time again in the northern part of Galilee going down to Jerusalem, even toward this community called Qumran where John the Baptist was raised. This is where Jesus went up into the mountains, desolate, steep, arid, He spends 40 days. He comes down from those 40 days. And who's there to meet him and greet him? Satan. And it's Satan that gives to Jesus three temptations that are listed in Matthew. I don't know if these are the only three. Are they representative? Really doesn't matter. Matthew writes out and describes three temptations that Jesus endured. They're serious. One of them was overturning stones into bread. Another was proving himself by jumping off the highest point in Jerusalem, the pinnacle of the temple, and letting the angels save him. And then the third one was the the do or die one. It's where Satan said, I'm going to lay all my cards out on the table. If you will bow before me, I will give you my kingdom. Of course, Satan didn't have any kingdom. What he did have was only temporary, but he dangled that in front of Jesus. In other words, telling him, avoid the cross. Just don't go there. Don't die upon a cross because dying upon a cross is our ultimate victory. But go back to that first temptation, turning stones into bread. Was Jesus going to eat? Yes. He wasn't going to starve for the next three, three and a half years. Physically couldn't. It'd be impossible. So it wasn't a question of whether or not he was going to eat. But it was the timing of eating. Was he going to use his powers that he well could have to pick up a rock and to hold it in his hand and to say whatever prayer he wanted to say or look at it in a certain way or say nothing if he chose to. And all of a sudden that would become bread that he could eat. Was he going to do that? You remember what he said? He said, no. Man shall not live by bread alone. He was quoting the Old Testament. But what was Jesus really doing? He was really saying, it's the timing of it all. I'm not going to use my power to satisfy my own hunger. I'll eat later. I'll eat when I get back to Jerusalem. I'll eat when I want to eat. But I'm not going to prove anything to anyone by turning stones into bread right now. Folks, that's good counsel. 
How many times in your life have you prayed a prayer and you prayed it so earnestly and you couldn't understand why God didn't say yes? Perhaps he said no. Perhaps he does what he does a whole lot of the time. He just doesn't say yes or no, but he says what? He says wait. And it's real easy for me to turn wait into yes. So it is for you. How many times have you faced a decision in life where in the, the real big picture, it wasn't that what you wanted to do was wrong, but it was wrong at that time. It wasn't the wise decision. It wasn't, wasn't the time. In hindsight or living life or looking back, you begin to see now why God answered the prayer in the way that he did and why you were beckoned to wait, why you had to put the brakes on that choice. And it turned out that waiting meant that somewhere down the road it was the right time for something not good, not better, but best. See, that's what this, that's what this child is going to do for us. He's going to be given these wonderful titles. And here today we look at not just wonder, but he is the wonder of the world. And not just counselor, though he does give us the best counsel ever. But we look at them together. Put together without the comma. He is the wonderful counselor. The wonderful counselor. Who has come to this earth. Emmanuel, God with us, who has our best interest in mind, who gives us the path. And unlike any king before him or after, he is the capital king, king of kings, capital L, Lord of lords. That's who Jesus is. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to come to you. Father, I know we've bit off a lot here today. Lots of history, lots of how does this affect that? What does it mean for me? But Father, bring our attention to the title. With a son born, the son that Isaiah prophesied, who did not come for 800 years, but when he did come, he is the wonderful counselor. But Father, help us to take his guidance, to seek earnestly to please you, and to never be to never get used to the wonder of Jesus and to always seek the counsel of the wonderful counselor. This is our prayer.
We make it in the name of the wonderful counselor, Jesus. Amen. We wrap up this hour the way we do each and every time we meet for when God speaks, we respond. There's always a choice to make. And it could be that some of the choices need to be made publicly. There are no secret disciples in the scripture. So if you're here today and you have never trusted Jesus, never prayed that prayer saying, Lord, fill my heart, forgive my sin, lead me. I give my life to you. That, those are choices. That is the single most important choice you'll ever make in your life. And if we can pray with you about that, if we can help you understand what that choice means, <clears throat> that's why we're here. And so we invite you to come, to step out from where you are and to profess your faith in Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you know the Lord. You just never told anyone. Well, tell us. Profess your faith in him. Let's talk about what water up there means. Baptism. Why is it important? Why did God give us that symbol, that sign? And if that's something you're puzzled about, confused about, if, well, I, I had that done when I was a baby, let's talk about that. Something done for you, but something you had nothing to do with. Believer's baptism is your choice to show a lost and dying world that you belong to him. So let's visit about that sign, that symbol. If you want to join our church today, it's not a hard thing to do. It's a very important thing. You don't do it lightly. But to unite with our church to be a part of First Baptist Church of Louisville, it's just stepping out, coming forward, stating your desire to be a part of our church family. That's the beginning. So we invite you to unite with us and to join with us, link arms with us as we seek to bring God's kingdom closer to this earth. And then maybe it's all about wonderful counselor for you today. Maybe you've been, maybe you've kind of lessened what wonderful means. Is it because you're disappointed in God? He hadn't done what you wanted him to do? Or perhaps it's bad decision after bad decision. It's just made you give up almost. What kind of counselor are you taking? There's much to learn from the wonderful counselor who loves you and me. So whatever that is for your life, whatever... choice of obedience you need to make make it now and don't walk out of here ignoring the wonderful counselor who loves you more than anything that's our invitation i ask you to stand as we wait here you step out as god leads you respond